0: Hello, I'm Nadia Singh and welcome to IDSA's podcast series, COVID-19, What's Happening Now? This podcast aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be reviewing IDSA's guidelines on infection prevention for healthcare personnel caring for patients with suspected or known COVID-19. Here to cover that is IDSA board member Dr. John Lynch. Our guest moderator for this episode is Dr. Neil Skolnick.
1: Hello, John. Uh, This has been a difficult time, clearly, for all of us taking care of patients, and I think we owe a debt of thanks to you and the IDSA for taking on this task of putting together truly evidence-based guidelines in such a rapid fashion on the use of personal protective gear or PPE. For those of of us on the front lines, this is a absolutely critical document because we're doing what we can and it's critical that we do it safely. If we can't stay safe, we can't be there for our patients. We will be putting not just ourselves, but other patients and, and our family members at risk and it's not easy to find good solid evidence on the correct approach to pp because this as is true of many other issues in the evolving landscape of covid-19 is filled with opinion is filled with quick assessments on very little data and the the fact that you all got together and used a careful grade methodology, which is a rigorous evidence-based methodology that uses, and our listeners should know, the best available evidence to make explicit recommendations on well-defined questions that were selected ahead of time. And those questions, in this case being the prevention of COVID-19 in healthcare personnel caring for patients with known or suspected COVID-19, was an in- incredibly quickly done, wonderfully done uh, task. The guideline panel included frontline clinicians, infectious disease specialists, experts in infection control and guideline methodologists, and the guidelines when they were completed were reviewed and endorsed by the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America, the Pediatric Infectious Disease Society, and the American Society of Microbiology. So these guidelines carry weight. In the grade recommendation, people should know the uh, word recommend indicates a strong recommendation, suggest indicates a conditional recommendation. The other thing to be aware of before we dive into the guidelines is that because of issues around limited availability of PPE in many settings, which we're all way too familiar with, the guidelines... Shows to be explicit in addressing what's recommended in a conventional setting where there's no issue of availability of PPE, but took that next step in terms of a pragmatic approach, understanding the constraints that many of us are operating in. And they also have recommendations for contingency or crisis capacity settings where there's limited availability of PPE. John, before we start on the recommendations, can you discuss the different modes of potential transmission of COVID-19 and distinguish that from the transmission modes that are actually of the most clinical significance?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for your kind words, Neil. I just want to give a shout out to IDSA for being really forward, thinking and getting ahead of all of this and putting the resources where they really need it to be. Um, I'm really in- indebted to the incredible methodology team Uh, that was participating on this panel. uh, Really professionals in great methodology, finding the data, presenting the data in a really uh, useful and thoughtful way. And then also obviously the panelists who pulled from the IDSA um, membership who gave up a lot of time, a lot of nights and evenings and weekends uh, to get this work done in a rapid fashion. So it was a fantastic experience um, to go through it, uh, full of really amazing conversations and access to lots and lots of data very quickly, um, but it was a lot of work, uh, especially for our panelists. Too. Going back to your question though, um, you know, we have to recognize that there is so much unknown that this remains an enormous area uh, a, a gap in knowledge is how do we move or transmit viruses from uh, you know, one infected person to another person. We have to recognize that the approaches we've historically taken in infection prevention control uh, you know, traditionally separating the things like droplet and airborne precautions are really pragmatic approaches uh, in a way to make PPE accessible and useful uh, to healthcare workers at the front line. But behind all that, I think it's abundant clear, and, and now more than ever, that this is really a continuum. And the question really is, what's the contribution of sort of each part of that continuum to transmission of disease, particularly with SARS-CoV-2? When an infected person coughs, sneezes, speaks, sings, we know all of these are potentially uh, mechanisms or, or tools that allow the transmission of virus. Uh, but the issue is what we think, are what part is the majority? What is the most likely? Because that's where we want to aim our PPE recommendations. Um, and what we've really been able to show is that the vast majority of transmission is really a factor of probably two things, right? It's proximity and time. And so when we see the majority of transmission events, they're really between people who have spent time together and are close together. And that really supports the droplet transmission as probably the major driver. We have to remember that droplet in some cases can be considered another form of, of contact, right? Droplets are come out of a human being who's infected. They land on an environment uh, that can lead to indirect transmission. Another person comes along and touches that keyboard or that table or that uh, handle to a door and then touches their eyes, nose or mouth, they gets infected. But they also be a form of uh, sort of almost to extent direct where the droplets land directly in the mucosa in the mouth of someone leading to infection. And if you look at the epidemiology of the infection, the way it's spread, who gets infected, it's really that droplet transmission that we think is driving this. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't particles has been demonstrated in a number of studies recently uh, floating in air, uh, you know, in very, very, very small, what we call respirable particles that could be aspirated directly into the airway. There's definitely RNA there. There's definitely RNA that's floating up in the air. The issue is that that doesn't appear to be a major driver of transmission.
1: That's so helpful. And thanks for going over that in in that detail, because I think that's a common area of confusion, uh, both among the public, but also among those of us providing care. Let's move on now and talk about the recommendations for the use of a surgical mask or an N95 respirator as a part of PPE when caring for patients with suspected or known COVID-19. And there were two different recommendations. One was for conventional settings and the other for contingency or crisis settings. John? Yeah, so uh,
2: it's really, this is uh, an important part of, uh, really extends from the conversation we just had around what is the major type of transmission again the epidemiology really strongly supporting droplet transmission time and proximity being the major drivers and risk factors for that transmission we recognize that there's different guidelines out there and different guidance uh, including from uh, the u.s center for disease control around what's the best possible uh, mask or respirator to use in these settings when we looked at the evidence uh, it, it was very clear to the panel based on the available data that's out there, that a healthcare worker working with a patient in routine care, and when I mean that in this particular setting is care that doesn't involve an aerosol generating procedure, that a healthcare worker is, uh, could use either a surgical mask or an N95, and I'll just throw it out there, a PAPR. These are different type of respirators that are out there. Um, and so in, in a typical conti- uh, conventional setting, that is an appropriate approach. And again, this is consistent with WHO, Canada, Australia, UK guidelines. And we recognize that uh, other guidelines, including the U.S. CDC, uh, are somewhat aligned, um, as we recall, looking at those guidelines. The CDC does allow for the use of surgical masks in those same settings when there's uh, N95s are not available. Um, So to some extent, it is there. Um, But just when you look at the data, it does support basically equivalence in those non-AGP, non-aerosol generating processes. In contingency or crisis settings, we uh, do go to the same recommendation. The one change we uh, had there is that we recognize with N95s being on short supply in many places that we are using uh, contingency or crisis uh, mechanisms for uh, extending the use of N95s. And that's either reprocessing or extended use. Um, And we recognize that if you don't have an option, uh, in those settings, if you have a surgical mask, you could. the alternative would be a reprocessed or reused N95 respirator as opposed to nothing.
1: Because this is an area where there, I think, is some confusion and a, certainly a lot of questions about the relative efficacy of surgical masks versus N95s. Would it be possible to take a little deeper dive into the effectiveness of one versus the other? So my understanding is that without the use of any protective equipment, that there's about a 30, 30% of healthcare personnel in direct patient care with patients who have COVID-19 may get infected, that the use of masks decreases that substantially Could you talk a little bit about how much that decreases using a surgical mask and is there a significant difference or not with an N95? Because that comes up all the time.
2: Yes, certainly. So um, let me frame it this way, is that as you stated, that the use of a surgical mask has been shown to be protective when you're talking about a respiratory virus. The panel was, I think, clear and in unanimous alignment that Uh, healthcare workers should be protected with a surgical mask in the context of other protective equipment, right? We have to remember eye protection, gowns and gloves are all part of that package. When you add a surgical mask to that, it definitely improves the safety of healthcare workers. There is also very good data out there demonstrating that healthcare workers who are exposed to aerosol generating procedures without PPE are at higher risk than healthcare workers who are not exposed to aerosol generating procedures without PPE. And the real challenge for us is that we recognize that AGPs appear to carry a higher risk of transmission to healthcare workers. The real challenge is that there are no data uh, that one type of airway protection, a mask or respirator, has been demonstrated to be superior in terms of safety. And so this is where the real gap is, I think, for us, and when we think about these recommendations, uh, and it really calls out one particular part of, of our recommendations that are a little challenging from the grade perspective, and that's where the recommendation for using an N95 respirator was put in for AGPs. Uh, we had a big discussion around really the lack of any evidence of the superiority of an N95 for healthcare workers using, uh, involved in AGPs. And so that recommendation was made basically on the mechanical properties of an N95 as potential protection against aerosols, very, very small size respiratory particles, um, and uh, really just the, des- the, the desire to protect healthcare workers uh, as much as possible. This just, I think, points out to a, something I hope we get to a little bit later in this conversation is that there is a huge amount of, of challenge in how we deal with all these uh, problems and these questions because of the lack of really good studies. Um, And I think one of the big issues uh, that was highlighted in this particular set of guidelines is really the emphasis on gaps in knowledge and the need for additional research to the areas of infection prevention and control.
1: You know, one of the things I thought that was really well done, and you mentioned that lack of uh, evidence, but there was a point in the guidelines where you acknowledged that and you talked about the strong recommendation, we'll discuss in a minute the specific recommendations for aerosol generating procedures, but that it was based on attaching a high value to protection of healthcare workers. So you used the evidence that was available, even though it wasn't what we wish it was, and when you meshed that with a high value attached to protection, came up with the recommendations. Can you now go over specifically what the recommendations are for uh, protection of healthcare workers who are in aerosol generating procedures and uh, some examples of what those procedures might be?
2: Yeah, absolutely. This is a really hot topic and I wish we had uh, more time in the panel and I hope in the future be able to really dive into this whole issue of aerosol generating procedures because I think anyone involved in the care of COVID patients recognizes that this has been a significantly challenging problem. Uh, what is an aerosol generating procedure? Um, what what constitutes that? Is there a threshold that makes something an aerosol generating procedure versus not? Um, and then ultimately, as we point out in this uh, guideline, real lack of data supporting a different type of you know uh, airway protection so our recommendation uh in both conventional settings as well as contingency and crisis settings for healthcare workers involved in an aerosol generating procedure and we want to be very clear that's anyone in the space where the patient's being taken care of is the use of an n95 and as you mentioned neil Uh, This is really based on the fact that we want to, the panel really emphasized the avoidance of serious harm to exposed healthcare personnel. So regardless of the lack of data of benefit for N95s in protection of healthcare workers when doing AGPs, uh, the panel felt strongly given even the lack of evidence that we want to go that way. We had long discussions around the, what the grade methodologists have taught us is indirect evidence. The real challenge here is that to get to an N95 in terms of protection with AGPs, it's indirect of indirect of indirect. We're getting into degrees of it. And so uh, we just finally recognized that there was no evidence. Um, and it's interesting in the grade methodology, uh, you had mentioned strong, conditional, and so forth. There's no, no evidence category in there. So even where we put the very low certainty of evidence, it's actually even lower than that. Um, but again, recognizing we really want to prioritize healthcare worker safety. The other place, uh, just to quickly go through it, is in crisis or contingency settings um, for AGPs. We also want to recommend uh, the use of N95 respirators or PAPRs or similar. And we put it into the guidelines and uh, extended them in those settings how to look at extended use and process or reprocess N95s in those settings.
1: That is another thing that I think just really comes up a lot on the ground, and that's the durability of the N95 respirators. And specifically, how long can they be used for, and how many times can you put them on and take them off and expect them to be effective?
2: When you think about how you can do extended use versus reprocessed, so reuse after some sort of step, it gets actually quite complicated. And what I'm seeing out there is sometimes combinations of those two where you start really having to figure out what's possible and what's safe becomes quite challenging. I hope actually in some near future time, be able to sort of set up a diagram of all the ways you can combine extended and reprocess and reuse. Mm -hmm. But I would say the the things we're learning a lot about uh, how these masks, how durable they are. I would say that probably the most durable way that we can approach this is the CDC's recommendation around uh, using time. So instead of having a chemical process or a UVC process, uh, if, you, if a healthcare worker uses an N95 with a plan to reuse it, that, that goes into a breathable container, right? Something like a brown paper bag, and it's put aside for five days. We have, I think, very good data, probably better data than most other respiratory viruses about the durability of this virus on surfaces. And so you give it five days, that mask is, uh, has been used. It is going to be reused, but there's no chemical or light uh, being applied to it that could potentially impact its, uh, its structure. And so I think that's one where we could be seeing very long reuses. Uh, we do not know what the true finite lifespan of an N95 is. And this is where we really have to call on the frontline healthcare workers and systems to make sure that the integrity of these masks, particularly the elastic bands, which can probably wear out far before the material that the mask is made of. I think the real challenge comes in when you start to look at prolonged use. So uh, healthcare workers wearing these for more than one patient encounter over many hours. How many times can you pull it on and off before that elastic band starts to lose some of its integrity? And again, having to go back to frontline healthcare workers. And honestly, I would argue it probably adds to some of the stress around use of these N95s for folks in these situations where AGPs are a risk. Um, You know, having to do their own assessments is I can recognize as a challenge. I think where the real question comes in for me isn't it's definitely prolonged use is an issue or extended use that using time and reuse is an issue. But I think where this really uh, remains to some extent an open question is we start using things like vaporous hydrogen peroxide and using UVC. Um, we know from the Patel team, uh, who are doing a lot of vaporous hydrogen peroxide work, and I think have an EUA on this, that they've said they could do up to 20 times. Uh, I think a recent paper looked at uh, something in the order of three to five times. Um, and so how that works out, I think still remains unknown. And then you throw in reuse, just the mechanical properties, the elastic bands of the N95s, the fit. Combined with the chemical application. And the same thing with UVC, I think we're definitely looking at it, that's a much shorter duration of reprocessing or number of times of reprocessing into into effect, probably in the order of, you know, several, three to five, but the absolute numbers uh, remain honestly unknown.
1: And I think that's so helpful, though, for people to have that sense of both the complexity, but also some rough guidance, because some of us work in large health systems where those decisions are made for us. But some of the people listening and looking for guidance are also in their own offices or going out as individuals, taking care of patients in nursing home environments, which are very very challenging environments that often have a uh, dearth of equipment and yet people who are very vulnerable. And that that whole area has become an increasing issue. And I think it's really helpful for people to have the guidance that uh, you just talked about along uh, as far as a general approach to N95s. Yeah. Let's now move on and talk about some other areas uh, specifically. Can you talk a little bit about double-gloving, the rationale for it, and what the recommendation uh, is with regard to double-gloving as a part of personal protective gear?
2: Bottom line up front, we were really unable to make a recommendation uh, around the use of double gloves versus single gloves for healthcare personal protective equipment and recognize this as a knowledge gap. I think that uh, this came out of conversations with our methodology team, who just as a aside here are, uh, some of whom are physicians, they're they're experts in methodology as well as clinical medicine, and practices that have actually been adopted by some of the other societies and just other specialties in general. So um, this has come up as a way to mitigate uh, potentially getting virus on people's hands, um, and in terms of doffing. Uh, Again, we weren't able to actually find data to support the use of double gloves versus single gloves. And in part, I think this had to do with the recognition that how we use gloves, how we remove personal protective equipment is complex. And there's a lot of need for understanding how PPE is removed with uh, sort of a human behavior or human factors approach. And again, this is another area of much needed research in the area of infection prevention and controls. You can't separate out how we use gloves, how we use gowns, masks, and eye protection from how humans put it on and take it off. It feels like we're waffling, but to be honest, we just couldn't find data to support the use of double gloves as safer for healthcare workers, which I think is important. What we keep coming back to, and those of us who work in infection prevention control always emphasize is that what's really important in preventing trans self, you know, self-contamination or transmission of things like COVID-19 and other respiratory viruses isn't how many gloves you have on or even the PP. it's really the hand hygiene. Uh, and if we continue to engage in excellent hand hygiene, that's really the, where the focus should be. And adding on multiple layers of gloves probably isn't the answer.
1: The discussion toward the end of the guidelines about human factor analysis as an important part of this, I thought was so insightful because having just spent some time on our hospital service taking care of many patients with COVID-19, boy, this it is complex to put all the different pieces of equipment on. And we, without evidence, I realize, started using an approach where one of us would observe the other person periodically putting on, donning, and taking off, doffing the equipment. And it was interesting how often uh, the person observing was able to give feedback and say, wait a minute, you might be able to do that better, be more careful there. And we probably don't pay as much attention to the procedure of donning and doffing as we might. So I, I, I thought that uh, that discussion in the, gu- in the guidelines themselves about the importance of the details was wonderful. Going on now, a couple of other short issues can you discuss the uh, shoe covers?
2: Similarly to the uh, double-gloving versus single-gloving, we identified a knowledge gap, and we could not make a recommendation for shoe covers versus no shoe covers. Um, And uh, the basic recognition here is that we have seen lots of reports, both in the media, in social media, uh, in our own experiences of healthcare workers, um, and their deep and relevant and real concern about bringing virus around their facilities, but also bringing it home on their scrubs, on their shoes, you know, and so forth. And so we, we did, and the methodologist did a, you know, a really in-depth dive uh, into all of what's available out there, and we just could not find any data that would support a risk for shoes in transmission. Now, we recognize that there, I think there's at least one or two studies out there that find RNA on the shoes of healthcare workers. Um, But whether that's really a risk for uh, transmission is unlikely in our review. Um, But again, the data is weak where it's there at all.
1: And again, I think it's been really helpful to have that explicit so that we, we know. Let's move on to outpatient practices as offices are beginning to reopen for patients. What is the IDSA's assessment of whether universal use of masks for patients and healthcare personnel should be used in general healthcare settings?
2: This is one of those real uh, important areas around that I think a lot of folks are moving to, particularly as you're seeing uh, relaxation of physical distancing uh, in communities, which I think has been incredibly effective. and. Our basic gist on this, and honestly, we could have spent a, a lot more time, and I, I would love to do that in the near future, is that um, we, while we recognize surgical masks definitely decrease the risks of transmission to healthcare workers involved directly in patient care, that there wasn't great data on the use of masks in uh, populations, And so uh, we included this in our narrative summary under the heading, should universal masking be used to prevent COVID-19 transmission in healthcare settings? And again, it goes back and is linked to really important connections around basic infection prevention. So hand hygiene, how do we uh, make sure that healthcare workers have access to other parts of the PPE package, right? The eye protection, gowns and gloves. So there may be some benefit, but it is uncertain. And we also have to recognize, uh, and you, you Neil, know, probably in your work, and I'm sure other infectious disease docs, uh, providers on this call recognize is that there are significant challenge around not only supply chain, but how people use a mask. For, my, for instance, at my facility at the University of Washington at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, um, we've basically just, we just rolled in uh, required masking about uh, four days ago. And we're spending this week, I am recognizing that it is not going to look pretty or excellent, but we're spending this entire week with people roaming and uh, sort of doing that officer work that you just mentioned, that trained observers going around and helping people with their appropriate mask use outside of patient care areas, um, providing feedback in the videos out there, because it is not a normal thing for healthcare workers to be wearing these masks outside of uh, direct patient care interactions. It really goes against All the things that us in infection prevention have been telling people for a long time. And so I recognize the challenges. I've walked out of my office several times without my mask on, and I have to always remind myself about how to do it. So it remains a very conscious action, and we also, you know, as we think about it, potentially could introduce some risk. And so when we think about that, and the panel reviewed it, we just uh, came to the conclusion that we couldn't find evidence, we couldn't make a recommendation, that there are some data out there, but um, the balance was still remained about the utility versus potential Harm of doing this.
1: Since the information in this area is changing so rapidly on all the things that we discussed, what are the plans for updating the guidelines and what are the plans for how to communicate the updates?
2: This is uh, one of those things around communication. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this and IDSA for supporting uh, this podcast, and I hope to do more in the future. So, like the treatment guidelines, these are meant to be living guidelines, these are meant to be updated regularly. I am very energized, invigorated with uh, the the panel's contributions, the methodologist's approach, and I have a dozen more questions that I would really like IDSA to tackle. We can do more around masking. Just before the podcast started, you talked about uh, how PPE is used in ambulatory settings, and I'd like to emphasize that um, not only for infectious disease providers in ambulatory setting, but I think our ambulatory colleagues across the country, where most of patient care is actually delivered, really need additional help and are looking to IDSA to uh, help them with that. The other one is around AGPs, is another area that I would, uh, I really hope that we can uh, tackle because this has created a huge amount of confusion. Uh, it's leading to a lot of personal protective equipment use, the, you know, the so-called burn rate. And honestly, I think has contributed to a lot of concern and in some cases fear. So these are meant to be living guidelines. We're gonna to continue to update them as more data comes available. As we all know, it's more research and is coming out pretty much every day. And I am dedicated to making sure that these guidelines are as up-to-date as possible, recognizing that um, they do carry a lot of weight um, and are being looked to as guidance. And just as an aside, you know, I'm getting messages from places in other parts of the world about uh, how these could be interpreted for use in uh, you know, lower resource settings. And I'm careful about saying that because I want everyone to, to be clear that, you know, here in the United States, many of our facilities are are low resource right now and are working in contingency and crisis capacity. But many other parts of the world are actually in worse shape. And so how do we uh, support them through these guidelines is is also just as important.
1: John, thank you for all this thoughts. So you actually anticipated my usual last question. Are there any things we haven't covered?
2: Um the last thing I, I wouldn't mind saying is that as someone who's spent the last you know 10 years of his life working in the areas of infection prevention control and antimicrobial stewardship and employee health, particularly in the realm of infectious diseases, you know, it's an amazing part of ID. And I uh, really enjoy being part of a team that works on these particular questions and, and working in healthcare settings as well as providing patient care. But we are really seeing, I think, a, a wake-up call for the research community and funders around the huge gaps in how do we keep healthcare workers and patients safe in all healthcare environments. From a lot of the, you know, the presentations and the questions we just talked about, there is a sincere and, and really concerning lack of data. Uh, for a lot of the questions that are being asked right now that are really driving huge system, you know, resources and uh, protocols. And we really desperately need more research. And obviously, to do more research, we need to, uh, as a country, to provide better resourcing and funding for those researchers to ask these really important questions.
1: You know, it's interesting as I think about the guidelines with their emphasis on protecting us as healthcare workers in order to enable us to help others. I'm reminded of one of my favorite quotes by the theologian Hillel, who said, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? But if I'm only for myself, what good am I? And then he went on to say, "And if not now, when?" And and really, you and the rest of the members of the committee and the IDSA really uh, have embodied that ideal uh, with putting together these guidelines. We as healthcare workers have to make sure that we protect ourselves in order to be there. Uh, not just for ourselves, but for all of our patients. So I really want to thank you, both for for the time you took on the guidelines, but also for the time you're taking now to ensure the dissemination of this uh, important information. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Neil. It was a pleasure. This guideline on infection prevention, people should know, complements the IDSA's additional guidelines on COVID-19 treatment and management, which is currently available, and the guideline that is to come out soon on diagnostic testing. So please read the guidelines, listen to the podcast, the information is there for you. Nadia?
0: At this time, we'd like to thank Dr. John Lynch for his participation. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Nadia Singh.